Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see everyone. Uh, this is no doubt one of my favorite times of the year when we can gather together with communities beside one another, uh, with churches beside one another, in order to hear incredible music like that, to be able to eat good food that you have in front of you, and also hear the word. So that's where I'm at this morning, or this afternoon, excuse me. It's hard when you preach in the morning and you get in front of everybody and you think that you're still in the morning. If you happen to have the Bible or a Bible app of some sort, uh, we'll be in 1 Peter 2 this afternoon. Um, and it is a message that I think we can all resonate with in many ways. Um, and I hope we can connect this message to our daily lives. And I think we'll see that here in a few minutes. I know you're full, so I'm not going to ask you to stand for the reading of Christ's Word. But if you would, take it in and, and feast on it as you continue to feast on the food in front of you. We're in 1 Peter 2, and I'll be reading verses 19 through 25. If I can see it. There we go. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it? You endure, but if you do not, if you do good and suffer and you endure, this is a gracious thing. Thank you. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ has suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges all. For he himself bore our sins and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather this very day for the reception of your word, but more importantly, the commemoration of what this day is, and that is the day in which your son bore our sins in his body. And that is a heavy weight for us to be able to wrestle with. But we are grateful that you are a God who is not removed from our pain and suffering, but you are a God who draws near to our pain and suffering. And so at this time, as we lean into your word and we feast on your word, may your presence be ever so near to us yet again. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. If you're anything like our family, we tend to have very busy schedules. We have t-ball a couple of times a week, and then you've got to situate family time in that schedule as well. Maybe uh, you have children in education, whether it's college or below, or maybe you are in education world as well, where you're continuing your education. Oh, and let's not forget work. We've got to put that in there. 
And as the springtime is slowly approaching, we wouldn't think that today, but it is. But we get a mow, don't we? We had to tend to that yard and those beautiful flowers that are already making their way and blossoming and blooming. Or maybe some of us even have second jobs or third jobs. Oh, we have to also schedule that time with friends and also we have to go to the grocery store and we have to make time with our spouses and our loved ones, our children. We got to cook for them too in order to keep them full of sustenance and energy. We have to throw in time for the church, make sure that we're there raising um, our own children in the church and maturing and growing in the things of Christ. We also have to clean our homes and also we have to care for our neighbors. That's a lot. And that's by no means the full list of things that we have to do, but those are some of the meatier things that we have to schedule. But we don't schedule suffering, do we? It's not like we wake up and we think, hmm, can't wait to suffer today. We don't expect to put that in our schedule, our to-do list. But maybe after we see what Peter is after and in light of where we're at of Good Friday, maybe we see a slightly different picture of who we are as the church and who we are called to be as a people united in faith to Him, guided by His Spirit. Maybe we are to schedule suffering in our daily lives. So let's look at that. There's definitely an internal tension that you see in America. It's this internal struggle, and by no means is this list exhaustive, but there's some of the things that we do see in America as it relates to how we as Americans approach suffering. And the first thing is suffering and the experience of suffering, we tend to see it as without purpose or without meaning. I'm just suffering. We always put that word, we're just suffering, whether it's physically suffering or psychologically suffering or maybe spiritually suffering. We don't see it in the bigger scheme of things. We're just suffering. So we try to find, and we can't quite figure out the purpose of this suffering. Or second, maybe there's this suffering, physical or psychological or mental or emotional we look to medicine and we look to the medical world for our only hope. Hear me out. Our only hope. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look to the medicinal world and the medical world. We sure, certainly should. But if it's our only hope, we have traded the Messiah for medicine. <laughs> or thirdly, once it comes to Americans and how we typically look at suffering... We don't think of it as producing endurance, but rather hopelessness. Have you ever been with somebody where they're suffering so much they have almost no hope in light of so much pain that they're going through? So in light of this perspective of how many Americans see suffering, I wonder what Good Friday can teach us about suffering as the church, as God's people. Because I think what we have in these passage, this passage in these verses this afternoon is that Peter gives us a vision for suffering. He gives us an understanding of how the church can suffer well. If you look at verse 24, Peter says this, that Christ has suffered to bear our sin 
on the tree to bear our sin on the tree. And what he means by the tree is none other than the cross. He bears our sins. Well, what do you mean to bear our sins? I think what we confess as the church, as Christians, is that this is an utterly unique and unrepeatable work of the Son of God. Something that you and I can't do. We cannot take on our own bodies the burden and the brokenness and the sin of the world. That is something that's utterly unique and unrepeatable and a work that is perfectly made manifest and exhibited in the person of Christ. It is unrepeatable. It is unique. And in fact, if you look for, uh, for that word to bear our sin, the author of Hebrews 9, chapter 9, verse 28 says it like this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those and redeem those who eagerly wait for him. Did you catch that? Once. It's unrepeatable. And it says that when he appears again, he's not going to deal with sin again. Because it's already dealt with, completed, and perfect in his atoning work on our behalf. And when he bears the sins of many, he is the sacrifice. He is the one who takes on himself. And it is that work that is sufficient. It is enough. It is perfect to make us whole and to restore us back to God the Father. That's enough. There doesn't need to be any more work done. His is enough. Second thing that I think Peter is showing us is once it comes to Christ's suffering. Christ suffered that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He takes on our death, but... Here's the key part that Peter brings up. But he also gives us his life, his righteousness. It's not enough for Jesus to just take on our sin, but he actually takes on our sin, our brokenness, and then gives us life. What a good God. Oh, you can't bear that? You can't hold that? Let me have it. Oh, and here is life. We cannot do that kind of work, Christians. We cannot do anything to earn Jesus' favor, God's favor, because it is enough that has been done, and we need to rest in that work. The Christian faith is not die to sin and do whatever we want. It is not die to sin and do whatever we want. The paradox, something that is so incredible about the Christian faith is that we die and we kill sin in our own lives that we might be slaves to Christ. Do you hear that paradox? That our liberty is found in slavery. Our liberty is found in slavery. Slavery to whom? To Christ and his righteousness. That is the paradox that we find here in 1 Peter 2.24. And then if you look at verse 25, Peter brings this out. That Christ suffered to shepherd the strange sheep back to the shepherd. He suffers to take us as strange sheep and bring us back to the shepherd, the good shepherd. Has any of y'all taught T-ball? Let me see the hands. Moms, dads, grandparents. Have you ever tried to get them to do uh, something as simple as grab your helmet, grab your bat? That's not 
straying sheep. That's what we call herding kittens. It's a difficult task, is it not? They're running around. It's utter chaos within that dugout. And you're just trying to say, get your helmet, get your bat, stand out here. How hard, yet Christ looks at us and he sees us as straying sheep. Wild, crazy kittens doing their own thing, not paying attention to the work that has been offered to them. And yet he still takes time to bring us close, to shepherd us as strange sheep back to the good shepherd himself. I don't know how he does it, but he's done it. He is the shepherd, the one who protects. The shepherd cares for, he tends to, and yet he guides us. Which is where I think the last thing that we have for us this, this afternoon, and I really want to spend the rest of our time with on this last part that Peter brings out. That Christ suffered to leave his church an example to follow. An example to follow. Now, you probably had many of examples in your life, maybe a motherly or fatherly example. Maybe an uncle or a grandparent that had some sort of effect on your life because of the example that they lived for you and left as a legacy for you. Or maybe you had that servant-like person in your life that showed you what good service was like, how it was to serve other people, and they left you that example. Maybe you had moral or spiritual examples in your own life of how to actually love Jesus and to love neighbor. Or maybe you've had that great boss or leader who showed you what a true servant leader looked like to provide that example to follow. And I teach seventh grade, so I hear this one all the time, these athletic examples, these sports examples, the LeBrons of the world, the Steph Currys of the world, the Tiger Woodses of the world. They set this example for these kids to follow. The example that Peter's talking about in verse 21, in fact, this word happens once in the New Testament. It's right here. The Greek word is hupagramas, and it means to trace an outline. It means to sketch out. It means to be a writing copy, writing copy. So when you look at this and how Peter is saying that Christ has left us an example. It's this pattern for us to follow. It is this paradigm, this ideal, this standard, this archetype. He is the blueprint. Did you catch it? Of how we are to suffer. He has left an example. He is the standard paradigm for how we as the church are to suffer. Because if you look up to verse 20, I know I'm going backwards, but Paul is being linear in his thoughts. If you go back up to verse 20, he says this, for this is a gracious thing. What, Peter? In fact, when you read scripture, ask those questions. Ask those hard questions. What are you talking about, Peter? What is? What's this gracious thing that you suffer and you endure? Let's ask him again. Why? Why should we as your church suffer and endure? He tells us in verse 21. For to this, meaning this suffering, you have been called. For to this, what is the this? The suffering and endurance you have been called. That you in the, in the Greek is plural. It's not you. If, 
If Peter was in the south, he'd say, y'all, y'all, y'all are called to this. Well, what kind of calling? This Greek word kaleo, it means to be called out, to be invited, to be named and to be summoned. To be summoned. See if I can take you back into your childhood. Did you ever, were you ever with friends or with a, a group of family members, cousins that you were playing with or, and your mama called you out? She called your name? Nobody else is not cousin, not brother. She called your name. That's what Jesus is doing, church. He is calling out specific names and he's inviting us. He's summoning that you have been called out to be a people of suffering. As Jesus has set this example, as Jesus is the paradigm, you also are to suffer and endure in a similar way. Now, you can't repeat the type of suffering. You cannot take on the sins of the world, yet you are to suffer in the same ways that he suffered. In prep for this sermon, I came across one of my favorite writers who writes this. The church is not meant to call men and women out into safe religious enclaves, into little uh, happy places, but to call them out in order to send them back into the world as agents of God's kingship. What a powerful quote. If I could adapt it as it relates to Peter's vision, what he's trying to get us to understand of suffering, it would say this, Christ has called men and women out of the world in order to send them back into it as agents of God's suffering. That's good. He sends, he calls us out, sends us back in as agents of God's suffering. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves in this cute little sweet community of Trenton, Tennessee. What does it mean for you and for me to be agents, to be ambassadors of Christ's suffering? What does that look like in your streets, in your neighborhoods, to be able to be an ambassador, a spokesperson on behalf of King Jesus who has provided this perfect suffering? And how can we live out that suffering? Now, there are many implications that we can chase this down and say, what does this look like for us to bear the brokenness and the suffering of our brothers and sisters in Christ? That might be a sermon that you might have to hear another time, but I'm chasing a different path, and that is how do we focus on the implications, the effects of us being suffer-bearers of Jesus in our own communities, in our neighborhoods, to people who don't know who this Jesus is? I have a couple of things. Where people are suffering, be there. Do you feel the weight of that? Because that's the example that Jesus is there for the people who are suffering in his day. He is there. He's not over there. He is there. Here with them. Be there with them. Because as I said at the beginning of this little sermon that much of the American world sees their pain and their suffering as filled with hopelessness. Well, you can be there to show what hope looks like in the midst of suffering. As I told you a minute ago at the beginning of this, that many Americans tend to see their own suffering as purposeless. 
where we can be there in order to demonstrate the purpose of suffering and the example that has been set for us. Second, when people are suffering, point to Jesus as the source of comfort. He is the shepherd. Not only are we there with them, that we are pointing them to this Jesus who is the source of comfort. If there is one man who is both God and man, if there's one person who understands suffering in its fullness, it is certainly Jesus. And so we can point them to this Jesus as a source of comfort to be able to wrap his arms around them and to embrace them in the midst of the pain and the angst and the despair that they have. And lastly, whenever people are suffering, show that Christ, that this suffering does not have the last word. Suffering and pain does not have the last word ever once it comes to who Christ is and the work that he has done. We know that we are a people of the cross, right? We're a people of the grave, right? But we're also a people of an empty tomb. We are a people of not just Friday, we're a people of Sunday. Once it comes to understanding where we can be, we can be there with people who are suffering, seeing their seeing hope in the midst of hopelessness. When we see people are suffering, we can point to Jesus as this source of comfort. And whenever we see anybody suffering, we can show that Christ is the one who does, who does have the last word. That the grave is not the end of the story, but it is a risen Christ, an empty tomb. So let us be this people who are hurting with our communities so that we might demonstrate that love embraces, that the cross embraces and an empty tomb embraces. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. If there's certainly one day that we can give thanks to you as a God who is ever so near to us, it is this very day. A Friday of suffering hours on the cross and yet at the same time it is to bear our sins our own brokenness the difficult thoughts that we have the broken thoughts the the misintentions the misorientation of our hearts yet you are there bearing our sins in order to restore us back to the father And so, Lord, as we commemorate this day, as we're able to draw near to you, as you drew near to us, may we remember the fullness of this day. Because even though it's Friday, Sunday's a coming. And so, Lord, as we move from Friday and into the the, the grave that is still there on Saturday and the risen sun that is there on Sunday. May we continue journeying in this time of Lent to prepare ourselves for the goodness of who you are because you have risen your son. And now, in a few minutes, may you send us back into our communities in order to be a people of suffering, to show the example that Jesus has set for us, the model and paradigm, and may we be with people. May we embrace them and point them to Christ 
and to remind them that the suffering and the death is not the end of the story, but a risen Savior is. So we offer all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.